Well, we think a lot about the Gospels and Jesus actually teaching us, like, how we're supposed to behave, you know, telling us what's right and wrong, those kind of things. One of the things that we know that also comes from the Gospel is that Jesus teaches us about himself. And so you can read the Gospel simply from the point of view of saying, Jesus, teach me about yourself, because you can certainly do that. But um, what we are also taught is that Jesus reveals man to himself. Okay, so Jesus reveals yourself to you through the gospel. He tells us more about who we are and who we are supposed to be. It might be an interesting way if you're, if you're praying with the gospels to actually think about it from that point of view. So um, in today's gospel, we had um, the uh, Jesus goes over to the Gerasene territory and there's a fellow who's tormented by an evil spirit and he sends him out to the swine, the swine go over the hill. And then there's two interesting things that happen. One is the villagers who have been plagued by this guy are apparently not happy that Jesus has actually exercised this demon out of this man. Because they say to him, could you leave us now? Which is very interesting. You might ask about what that teaches us about ourselves. But then he also says something to the man that I'll use as our prayer today, and um, we'll do that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Lord, we place ourselves in your presence. We ask your Holy Spirit to be with us as we pray, and also with us through this seminar session tonight. We ask you to open our hearts and our minds to all that you wish us to hear, all that you wish us to say. As you said to the man in the gospel today, go home to your family and announce to them all that the Lord in his pity has done for you. We ask you, too, to help us to leave from here tonight to bring whatever truth, whatever love that you wish to give us, we may bring this to others. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be, St. Thomas Aquinas. Pray name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, I just want to do a quick little recap of, um, of last week to kind of just basically put us in context here. Um, and that is... We talked about the fact that, that man, human, persons, we want what we call eudaimonia, or happiness, or flourishing, and those are considered to be essentially equivalent words. Um, and that the reason why we do what we do, that is every one of our voluntary acts, everything that we choose to do, we do because somehow we think it's going to make us happy. Maybe it's not going to make us happy right now, but we see it as something that's going to lead us to happiness, right? Like, I go to work in the morning because, not perhaps because I'm so happy doing my work, but I like the paycheck at the end of the week, and I'm going to do something fun with that. Or it could be that I go to work because work makes me happy, um, and, I, and I find flourishing there. So what we saw last week is that there are various ways that we can think about this, about what makes you happy. Um, and there were various opinions um, that kind of intersect and flow with each other. I don't know if anybody get the happiness balloon up there, but anyway, <clears throat> you can tell me later. Um, so we talked about Aristotle a little bit, and Aristotle's idea is that good acts, our virtuous behaviors, in fact, make us happy. That it's not something coming from outside of us, but it's something from within us in terms of what we do, and that leads us to our happiness or our flourishing. And then Jesus came along and taught us the Beatitudes, and incorporated in all of those are um, some lessons on happiness. Um, and then we looked at St. Thomas Aquinas, 
Um, and we found that Thomas Aquinas has a whole long list of things that won't make you happy, right? So wealth won't make you happy, and fame won't make you happy, and glory won't make you happy, and all these things that don't make you happy. And I'm not sure that we actually landed off with an answer as to what Thomas Aquinas says does make us happy, but we'll get there. And then, you know, there are other ideas out there. And so I have a little quote here from one of my favorite little philosophers or something. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, here's a little quote that perhaps tells us something about other views of happiness. Perhaps it was in my hours of chatting with Ezra over Earl Grey tea or walking in the park and talking about the spiritual life that I realized that the crazy world we lived in also had its own gospel, still does. It can be very seductive and attractive, but in the end, very vacuous and the great delusion. Money, fame, good looks, thinness, sexuality, and the accumulation of stuff do not make one happy. Granted, there are those things which make us content and satisfied and happy for a time, especially the good things that kind of point the way to a higher, more ultimate happiness. And I think that's because this pull or drive towards happiness is innate in us human beings. It's all mixed up with our disordered egos, of course, and we search high and low for happiness, for meaning in our lives, because we know we cannot be happy if everything depends on our own power, our thinking, our being in control. It's one thing to know that or talk about that when you're 20 years old and strolling through the park with a friend like Ezra, and another to realize you're still working it out when you're blank number of years old. You can fill in whatever number you'd like there. All right, so various things might make us happy. And I used this little figure last week to say, well, there is a person, and somehow they have an idea that something out there is going to make them happy, and they have to figure out how do they get there. And I used a little Thomas expression, and I said that the final end, which means the thing that you're trying to get at, is first in your intention. It's what you're thinking about you want to get to, but it's last in execution. You don't get there right away. You think about it being there, but then you have to somehow figure out what is this and how do you get there. All right, so this week's little session and next week's and the week's af week after, really, is going to consider that fellow there. So it's not going to really consider this part yet, and it's not going to consider this, but it's going to consider the guy running or trying to get there. So we're going to talk about human person. Now, I'm just curious. Did anybody happen to watch the little video um, online? You did. Oh, good. Okay, so there was a little short video that was pretty much about six different current philosophical theories of personhood. W would anybody like to just throw out a, a, a brief synopsis of, of what you saw or heard or because most of you didn't see it, and will provide an incredible contrast to what we're looking at. Sister Mary Albert, did you say you watched it? I did watch it. Can you tell us something about it? Yes, he was talking about the different theories or way that people would define personhood. And um, some of it was based on, <coughs> one criterion was, if you had human DNA, then you were a human person. 
you distinguish between human and human person, where human was just kind of the biology part, but the person part is what he was <coughs> emphasizing. So that was one. Um, and another one, there were five criterion to it, and one of them was consciousness. Uh, I don't remember what the others were, but there were something related to oh, your self-awareness. Mm -hmm. um, and then the others were other varying degrees of... You're doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was one about it, you had to be valued by others. Oh, yeah, so you were valued others. by others, if you were a rock, that would do it. And then there was one that if you um, could say what you wanted, I think. I think that was one part of the one that had five different things. Yeah. Um, and then, at the, well, at and the then end, in the end, yes. Oh, at the end, do you remember what he said at the end? You know, I forgot. This is, a, this is an exercise for you to figure out. Uh, yeah. you know, now you try it. It's not as easy as you right. think. <laughs> you gotta go through, you include the, peop the whoever's you want, and don't exclude, exclude the, the ones that you don't want. Right. So he actually gives a very good explanation of what a definition is, right? A definition, it defines, it sets the limits to what something is. So it identifies that this is what it is, and then outside that limit, it is not that thing, right? And, and there are reasons for doing this. So for example, the example of consciousness, um, that you have to have consciousness, you have to have awareness of your surroundings and awareness of yourself to be human. You start to think about that, you will realize that at times in your own life, you are not human, right? You're like you're asleep. And so these definitions can be really problematic. And, and, and really, these definitions actually started out of a desire for, there are reasons why we need to know who's a human person. And one of the basic ones is a legal reason. And there's actually thought that uh, in early, in the Roman Empire, is where this concept sort of started developing is that there were certain people that were considered to be human beings, but were not considered to be human persons. And in fact, those were slaves. So in the Roman Empire, you were a human person, you qualified as a human person if you were a free human being, but if you were a slave human being, you did not qualify as a human person, although you were a human being. Now, in our, in our age today as well, defining the human person is extremely important in the field of law. Oh, I'm sure you can all think of examples right away. Uh, now, the, the term person or persona is said to actually have come from the idea of the Greek plays. That is, when somebody put on a mask and played a certain role, they took on a persona. Um, and this is kind of where the idea of the, of, the, of the term person came in. But where it became really kind of a developed concept was not initially related to human beings and human persons. It was really developed theologically. Because in Christian the theology, we had to somehow explain how do you talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's them up there, by the way. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit somehow as being three, but not saying that we have three gods, right? That there's still one God. How do you talk about that? And the other one that became uh, an issue to explain, right, is Jesus himself, okay? How do you explain that he's divine in nature 
but he's also human in nature, but he can't be two persons because he is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. So how do you talk about all these things? So developing the word person really came out of uh, Christianity, out of theologians trying to explain how do you talk about these things. And so then we can kind of apply it to, to human beings kind of secondarily. Now, here's a little warning. Um, we're going to talk sort of pretty quickly about a few terms that are very philosophical in nature. Um, so just hold on to your seat, okay? But I'll try to put them in some sort of framework so you get a basic general idea of them and then that we can apply them in a way that, that seems to perhaps work. Okay, so in this discussion of this idea of persons, we have something about the idea that we, we need to understand these two terms a little bit, essence and existence. The way to think about it is, is essence is what a thing is, right? So you can say to, to, to we can look at something and say, you know, what, what is it? Um, you look at a four-legged creature walking down the street with a, with a tail, and you might say, what is it? Well, it could be a cat, right? It could be a dog. It could be a squirrel. I guess they really jump. They don't really walk, right? Or it could be a rat. It could be a horse, right? It could be all sorts of those things. But what is it? What is the essence of the thing? Versus the fact that something simply exists, that it is, right? That thing is. But that a thing is is not the same as necessarily what the thing is, except in one case. Um, this sort of whatness and thatness can sometimes also be applied to these two words, nature and person. So and the nature of something, the whatness of something, right? The dogginess of a dog or the treeness of a tree or the humanness of a human being are, has to do with its nature, what the thing is. But for certain of those things, if we don't ask the question what, but we, actually can, we can actually ask the question who. And in that case, we are talking here about a human person. So we're talking about a person. Now, I'm going to I introduce those words nature and 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 person in terms of whatness and whoness because a friend of mine who's not a theologian and not a philosopher, we were sitting at a Catholic Medical Association meeting one day, and it was I think it was breakfast of all things, and and I said something about the Holy Trinity, and he said. Well, it, it really can be summed up like this. The Trinity is three who's in one what, and Christ is two what's in one who. <laughs> That's pretty good for a dermatologist. So the Trinity, the Trinity is three who's in one what, and Christ is two what's in one who. All right, so Trinity is three who's. Who's? That's the person. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one what? God. Whereas Jesus is two what's, divine and human, in one who? The second person of the Blessed Trinity, Jesus Christ. See, the Trinity's easy, right? And then there's other thing, the hypostatic union. That's what we talk about, Jesus. Now, he also added one thing which I thought was very, really even more astute than that first st statement, and that was that for us, the problem is that we're kind of stuck in the world of thinking that 
One who can only go with one what? Because that's the only way we see it, right? If I say to Anne, you know, what are you and who are you? Okay, those are two different answers. What she is as a human person and who she is is Anne. But there's only one of each in her, right? And that's what we're used to. So he said, we only think of it as matching up on a kind of a one-to-one -one basis. One who has to be one what? What's to say that God can't, you know, do it in other ways? And in fact, we have perfectly good evidence that he did because Jesus said, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? You know, baptize in the name of, that's one name, but three persons. Okay, now philosophers went on with this and had to then, I mean, it's nice if you have words to express whatness and whoness, but then you still have the problem of how do you then, we still haven't come up with a definition really, right, of what is a person. How do you describe, how do you make this define, how you set limits to what a person is and what a person isn't? So um, Boethius, here teaching some of his students, suggested that for a definition of person, we could use this. A person is an individual substance of a rational nature. An individual substance of a rational nature. So, you need to kind of take that apart a little bit. All right, individual is pretty easy. One, right? Okay. Substance. Um, substance you can basically think of as a thing. Just one thing. Okay. It really means that it kind of stands on its own, and I'll explain that in just a little bit more. Actually, we'll explain it in the next slide. To understand what a substance is, you actually have to understand the other term that goes along with it, and that's this other term called accident. <clears throat> a substance, as in fact the name implies, stands on its own. Okay? It, it is its own thing. An accident, which has nothing to do with motor vehicle accidents or anything like that, okay, it's a completely different term. Accident is something which only exists in something else. It's pretty easy as soon as you as soon as you think about it. Okay, a tree by this definition is a substance, not a person, but a tree is a substance. It is a thing. It exists on its own. I can say the tree is seven feet tall. Okay, seven feet tall is is not a substance. There's no thing out there that is you know that that, that there is seven feet tall. No no no. Something is seven feet tall. Like a tree can be seven feet tall, or a person could be seven feet tall. So seven feet tall is this thing, this accident, which has to exist in something else in the substance. Okay. You have a ball. A ball is a substance. It's a thing. Okay. Suppose it's yellow. Well, yellow is an accident. Yellow only exists really in something else. <laughs> Sister has a yellow highlighter back there. You could have a yellow all sorts of things, right? A yellow piece of fruit or a yellow vegetable. But yellow doesn't exist on its own. It only exists in something else. Chocolate pudding, right? Chocolate pudding's a substance. What can you say about chocolate pudding? That's an accident. Sticky. How about sticky, right? Sticky doesn't exist on its own. It has to exist in something else. Now, we're not so concerned about the accidents tonight. I'm trying to explain the accidents to explain the substance, the thing that actually stands on its own and doesn't need something else 
at least once it's in existence, it doesn't need something else. So when Boethius says that a person is an individual substance of a rational nature, so it's a thing which stands on its own, and then he says it has a rational nature. Um, rational meaning it has an intellect and in fact has a will. So it has the ability to, to think and in fact to choose freely based upon those thoughts. All right, so does that really explain person? Well, if you think about that, <coughs> you will realize that, uh, there's a little bit of thinking about it, is that it does explain three different types of persons, right? Number one, divine persons, okay? Individual substance, it stands on its own. It doesn't need something else to exist, right? God doesn't need something else to exist, and with a rational nature. Um, there are also angelic persons, as far as we understand them from Scripture, right? So angels and devils, both, as we had presented in today's gospel, are persons, individual substances of rational nature. And then finally, we in fact have human persons, right? So there's X number of human persons in this room, each one an individual substance who has a rational nature. All right, so to define a human person then, instead of just using that phrase, individual substance in, uh, of a rational nature, we could add that a human person is an individual substance of a rational human nature. That is, the whatness of it is, in fact, human. And you might notice right away that there's something completely different about human persons versus the other two types of persons, the divine and the angelic persons, and that is your body. Okay? You are a material being. right? A human person has material existence and not just spiritual. Um, these two things are actually wrapped up into one. And this actually becomes another very important way of describing the human person. That is, we refer to ourselves as having a substantial union of body and soul. And the substantial here is an important word. It's we're using it the way I was just using this word. And that is that it exists on its own as body and soul. Substance. Yes, substance. Substantial union as in substance. Not accidental. Um, so it is of the essence of the thing, right? A human person is this body and soul composite. That's the way um, Thomas talked about it. Now, as soon as we say this, we have to admit to ourselves that this is very hard to think about. Because as soon as we say two things, body and soul, our mind goes to two things. But it's not two things. It's one thing that has these two aspects to it. Descartes liked to talk about this, right, the ghost in the machine. There's this spirit that, you know, kind of fills up this amount of space. And then when it's all over, somehow that spirit just kind of comes out of that amount of space. Well, you, it sounds like you're actually talking about this spirit more like actually another material thing that's joined to the, the body. And it's not that. It, we can't even think about these as two separate things. I mean, it really, very honestly, is one. It's the two things so closely together. 
you know, there was this old, um, well, there's discussion. It comes up from time to time. Like, you know, in, in, the, in the life of a human being, when does ensoulment take place? Well, the question isn't even a good question because your body and your soul go together. As soon as you are alive, the principle of your life, in fact, is your soul. It's there. There's no question. Anybody know who this guy is? It's a Raphael painting. This is Adam. He's actually sitting up there next to like King David and a bunch of other saints contemplating God. But that's Adam, right? So the first one of this unique idea of body and soul. Um, but it is just very, very hard not to be dualist, not to separate out these two pieces and to actually spend time thinking them together. Now, I can tell some of you are thinking hard about this, and it's, it's making your brain hurt right now. Yeah, I'd suggest you like go to a chapel and sit with the Lord and go, wait, can you talk to me about this? So we had Father Thomas uh, Petrie, Dominican, was here last week, um, and he talked about this a little bit, and, and it was really, it really made you really stop and think. He said, because part of the problem is we want to keep thinking about this as this spirit thing that occupies my body. He said, you know, it would actually be better for us to think about our soul and think about your body occupying your soul. Think about it in the reverse direction. Um, but again, not to separate these things two out from each other. So you talk about ensoulment, and that's the beginning of the life, you know, and then, but what about the end? I mean, is, should we not then think of this separation, this temporary separation? No, there, no, that, so that's very good, yes. If you take it to the other end of life, you realize that there is a time when you can see what the body looks like without the animating principle, without the principle that gives it life. And that is, that is at the moment of death, right? So the traditional definition of death has always been when the soul leaves the body. The challenge in science is soul, right, the spirit, is not subject matter for modern-day science because modern-day science deals in the material. But but science is obligated to look for material signs that, in fact, this has happened. But yes, there is a separation there. And, and part of the reason that the, uh, we've always thought about the idea that, that death is hard is because your soul and your body are meant to be together. In a sense, they're not meant to separate from each other. They are that closely hand in glove, you know? It's not that your soul would be just as well in somebody else's body. It's not that way at all. Okay? Your, your body actually somehow reflects your soul, right? Because it's, it is you, right? Father Petrie also talked about the idea that the, the two things actually need each other. I mean, we think about the fact that the body can't be alive without the soul in it. But the soul also needs the body, he said. And that's a very interesting statement. Part of it is because... The way that the soul, the way that we come to actually know things is through the interaction of our senses with the material world. Well, our senses are material. It's part of the body. I mean, he actually went through this lovely little explanation of Thomas and how Thomas thought about how we actually come to know things. And, and he sort of glossed over it and just said it very quickly, but it was so true. Everything he, that he says about how Thomas says we learn things, it all matches up with modern neuroscience. 
I mean, you can, you can mesh the two really beautifully um, and see how they kind of fit together. All right, I'm going to stop there for just a little bit about uh, as far as person goes. I'm going to give you homework, as I did last week. I'm not sure. Some of you said you did do some homework, so that was good. The first homework assignment is going to say the same as last week, and that is anti-up. So last week I asked you to perhaps raise the level of some conversation that you would have with somebody that you normally have a conversation with, and perhaps put it on a little higher level and talk about what do you think happiness is or what do you think flourishing is. So perhaps we can do the challenge this week of, you know, what do you think human person is um, and why is it important? Um, secondly, I just wanted to point you to one um, number or one section of one number out of, that's the Compendium of the Social Doctrine, and those are provided for you on the website. The human person is an intelligent and conscious being capable of reflecting on himself and therefore of being aware of himself and his actions. However, it is not intellect, consciousness, and freedom that define the person. Rather, it is the person who is the basis of the acts of intellect, consciousness, and freedom. It is not the intellect, consciousness, and freedom that define the person. Rather, it's the person who is the basis of the acts of intellect, consciousness, and freedom. Right? So what we do is not what defines us. It's who we are that says what it is we might be able to do. These acts can even be absent, for even without them, man does not cease to be a person. Okay, so that's number 131. You might go back and just spend a little time thinking about that one. And the last one I want you to think about for homework is just maybe a thought on, um, on prayer. I mean, if we are the substantial unity of body and soul, what does that mean about prayer? About that kind of intimate interaction with God? This is actually from um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 356. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. What made you establish man in so great a dignity? Certainly the incalculable love by which you have looked on your creature in yourself. You are taken with love for her. For by love indeed you created her. By love you have given her a being capable of tasting your eternal good. Lord, help us all to recognize the great dignity that you have called us to as human persons and especially that that dignity comes from your great love for us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.